0: Chapter Twenty Part One of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by ward hill layman chapter twenty part one on the eleventh of february eighteen sixty one the arrangements for mr lincoln's departure from springfield were completed it was intended to occupy the time remaining between that date and the fourth of march with a grand tour from state to state and city to city one mr wood quote, recommended by senator seward quote, was the chief manager he provided special trains to be preceded by pilot engines all the way through it was a gloomy day heavy clouds floated overhead and a cold rain was falling long before eight o'clock a great mass of people had collected at the station of the great western railway to witness the event of the day at precisely five minutes before eight mr lincoln preceded by mr wood emerged from a private room in the depot building and passed slowly to the car the people falling back respectfully on either side and as many as possible shaking his hands having finally reached the train he ascended the rear platform and facing about to the throng which had closed around him drew himself up to his full height removed his hat and stood for several seconds in profound silence his eye roved sadly over that sea of upturned faces and he thought he read in them again the sympathy and friendship which he had often tried and which he had never needed more than he did then there was an unusual quiver in his lip and a still more unusual tear on his shriveled cheek his solemn manner his long silence were as full of melancholy eloquence as any words he could have uttered what did he think of of the mighty changes which had lifted him from the lowest to the highest estate on earth of the weary road which had brought him to this lofty summit of his poor mother lying beneath the tangled underbrush in a distant forest of that other grave in the quiet concord cemetery whatever the particular character of his thoughts it is evident that they were retrospective and painful to those who were anxiously waiting to catch words upon which the fate of the nation might hang it seemed long until he had mastered his feelings sufficiently to speak at length he began in the husky tone of voice and slowly and impressively delivered his farewell to his neighbors imitating his example every man in the crowd stood with his head uncovered in the fast-falling rain friends no one who has never been placed in a like position can understand my feelings at this hour nor the oppressive sadness i feel at this parting for more than a quarter of a century i have lived among you and during all that time i have received nothing but kindness at your hands here i have lived from my youth until now i am an old man here the most sacred ties of earth were assumed here all my children were born and here one of them lies buried to you dear friends i owe all that i have all that i am all the strange checkered past seems to crowd now upon my mind to-day i leave you i go to assume a task more difficult than that which devolved upon washington unless the great god who assisted him shall be with and aid me i must fail but if the same omniscient mind and almighty arm that directed and protected him shall guide and support me, I shall not fail. I shall succeed. Let us all pray that the God of our fathers may not forsake us now. To him I commend you all. Permit me to ask that, with equal security and faith, you will invoke his wisdom and guidance for me. With these few words I must leave you for how long i know not friends one and all i must now bid you an affectionate farewell quote. Quote, it was a most impressive scene said the editor of the journal we have known mr lincoln for many years we have heard him speak upon a hundred different occasions but we never saw him so profoundly affected nor did he ever utter an address which seemed to us so full of simple and touching eloquence so exactly adapted to the occasion so worthy of the man and the hour at eight o'clock the train rolled out of springfield amid the cheers of the populace four years later a funeral train covered with the emblems of splendid mourning rolled into the same city bearing a discolored corpse whose obsequies were being celebrated in every part of the civilized world Along with Mr. Lincoln's family in the special car were Governor Yates, ex-Governor Moore, Dr. Wallace, Mr. Lincoln's brother-in-law, Mr. Judd, Mr. Browning, Judge Davis, Colonel Ellsworth, Colonel Layman, and private secretaries Nicolay and Hay. It has been asserted that an attempt was made to throw the train off the track between Springfield and Indianapolis and also that a hand-grenade was found on board at Cincinnati. But no evidence of the fact is given in either case, and none of the presidential party ever heard of these murderous doings until they read of them in some of the more imaginative reports of their trip. Full accounts of this journey were spread broadcast over the country at the time, and had been collected and printed in various books. But, except for the speeches of the president-elect, those accounts possess no particular interest at this day and of the speeches we shall present here only such extracts as express his thoughts and feelings about the impending civil war in the heat of the late canvass he had written the following private letter springfield illinois august fifteenth eighteen sixty john b fry esq my dear sir yours of the ninth enclosing the letter of honorable john m botts was duly received the latter is herewith returned according to your request it contains one of the many assurances i receive from the south that in no probable event will there be any very formidable effort to break up the union the people of the south have too much of good sense and good temper to attempt the ruin of the government rather than see it administered as it was administered by the men who made it at least so i hope and believe I thank you both for your own letter, and a sight of that of Mr. Botts. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln. The opinion expressed in the letter as to the probability of war does not appear to have undergone any material change or modification during the eventful months which had intervened, for he expressed it in much stronger terms at almost every stage of his progress to Washington. At Toledo he said, quote, I am leaving you on an errand of national importance, attended, as you are aware, with considerable difficulties. Let us believe, as some poet has expressed it, behind the cloud the sun is shining still. At Indianapolis, I am here to thank you for this magnificent welcome, and still more for the very generous support given by your State to that political cause, which, I think, is the true and just cause of the whole country and the whole world solomon says there is a time to keep silence and when men wrangle by the mouth with no certainty that they mean the same thing while using the same words it perhaps were as well if they would keep silence the words coercion and invasion are much used in these days and often with some temper and hot blood let us make sure if we can that we do not misunderstand the meaning of those who use them let us get the exact definitions of these words not from dictionaries but from the men themselves who certainly deprecate the things they would represent by the use of the words what then is coercion what is invasion Would the marching of an army into south carolina without the consent of her people and with hostile intent toward them be invasion i certainly think it would and it would be coercion also if the south carolinians were forced to submit but if the united states should merely hold and retake its own forts and other property and collect the duties on foreign importations or even withhold the mails from places where they were habitually violated when any or all of these things be invasion or coercion to our professed lovers of the union who spitefully resolve that they will resist coercion and invasion understand that such things as these on the part of the united states would be coercion or invasion of a state if so their idea of means to preserve the object of their great affection would seem to be exceedingly thin and airy if sick the little pills of the homeopathist would be much too large for them to swallow in their view the union as a family relation would seem to be no regular marriage but rather a sort of free-love arrangement, to be maintained on passional attraction. Quote. At Columbus, quote, allusion has been made to the interest felt in relation to the policy of the new administration. In this I have received from some a degree of credit for having kept silence, from others some depreciation. I still think I was right— in the varying and repeatedly shifting scenes of the present without a precedent which could enable me to judge for the past it has seemed fitting that before speaking upon the difficulties of the country i should have gained a view of the whole field to be sure after all i would be at liberty to modify and change the course of policy as future events might make a change necessary i have not maintained silence from any want of real anxiety it is a good thing that there is no more than anxiety, for there is nothing going wrong. It is a consoling circumstance that when we look out there is nothing that really hurts anybody. We entertain different views upon political questions, but nobody is suffering anything. This is a most consoling circumstance, and from it I judge that all we want is time and patience, and a reliance on that God who has never forsaken this people." End quote at pittsburgh Quote, notwithstanding the troubles across the river there is really no crisis springing from anything in the government itself in plain words there is really no crisis except an artificial one what is there now to warrant the condition of affairs presented by our friends over the river take even their own view of the questions involved and there is nothing to justify the course which they are pursuing i repeat it then there is no crisis except such a one as may be gotten up at any time by turbulent men aided by designing politicians my advice then under such circumstances is to keep cool if the great american people will only keep their temper on both sides of the line the trouble will come to an end and the question which now distracts the country will be settled just as surely as all well other difficulties of like character, which have originated in this government, have been adjusted, that the people on both sides keep their self-possession, and just as other clouds have cleared away in due time, so will this in this great nation shall continue to prosper as heretofore. End quote. At Cleveland, quote, frequent allusion is made to the excitement at present existing in our national politics, and it is as well that I should also allude to it here. I think that there is no occasion for any excitement. The crisis, as it is called, is altogether an artificial crisis, as I said before. This crisis is all artificial, and has no foundation in fact. It was not argued up, as the saying is, and cannot be argued down. Let it alone, and it will go down itself. Before the Legislature of New York quote, When the time comes, according to the custom of the government, I shall speak, and speak as well as I am able, for the good of the present and of the future of this country, for the good of the North and of the South, for the good of one and of the other, and of all sections of it. In the meantime, if we have patience, if we maintain our equanimity, though some may allow themselves to run off in a burst of passion i still have confidence that the almighty ruler of the universe through the instrumentality of this great and intelligent people can and will bring us through this difficulty as he has heretofore brought us through all preceding difficulties of this country relying upon this and again thanking you as i forever shall in my heart for this generous reception you have given me i bid you farewell in response to the mayor of New York City, who had said, quote, To you, therefore, chosen under the forms of the Constitution, as the head of the Confederacy, we look for a restoration of the fraternal relations between the states, only to be accomplished by peaceful and conciliatory means, aided by the wisdom of Almighty God. Mr. Lincoln said, quote, in regard to the difficulties that confront us at this time, and of which you have seen fit to speak so becomingly, and so justly, I can only say that I agree with the sentiments expressed. At Trenton, quote, I shall endeavour to take the ground I deem most just to the north, the east, the west, the south, and the whole country. I take it, I hope, in good temper, certainly with no malice towards any section, i shall do all that may be in my power to promote a peaceful settlement of all our difficulties the man does not live who is more devoted to peace than i am none who would do more to preserve it but it may be necessary to put the foot down firmly and if i do my duty and do right you will sustain me will you not received as i am by the members of a legislature the majority of whom do not agree with me in political sentiments I trust that I may have their assistance in piloting the ship of State through this voyage, surrounded by perils as it is, for, if it should suffer shipwreck now, there will be no pilot ever needed for another voyage." End quote. At Philadelphia: quote, "It is true, as your worthy Mayor has said, that there is anxiety among the citizens of the United States at this time. I deem it a happy circumstance that this dissatisfied portion of our fellow-citizens do not point us to anything in which they are being injured or are about to be injured for which reason i have felt all the while justified in concluding that the crisis the panic the anxiety of the country at this time is artificial if there be those who differ with me upon this subject they have not pointed out the substantial difficulty that exists i do not mean to say that an artificial panic may not do considerable harm that it has done such i do not deny the hope that has been expressed by your mayor that i may be able to restore peace harmony and prosperity to the country is most worthy of him and happy indeed will i be if i shall be able to verify and fulfil that hope i promise you in all sincerity that i bring to the work a sincere heart whether i will bring a head equal to that heart Will be for future times to determine it were useless for me to speak of details or plans now i shall speak officially next monday week if ever if i should not speak then it were useless for me to do so now at philadelphia again quote, now in my view of the present aspect of affairs there need be no bloodshed or war there is no necessity for it i am not in favor of such a course and I may say in advance that there will be no blood shed unless it is forced upon the government, and then it will be compelled to act in self-defense. End quote. At Harrisburg, quote, I recur for a moment but to repeat some words uttered at the hotel in regard to what has been said about the military support which the general government may expect from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in a proper emergency to guard against any possible mistake, do I recur to this. It is not with any pleasure that I contemplate the possibility that a necessity may arise in this country for the use of the military arm. While I am exceedingly gratified to see the manifestation upon your streets of your military force here, and exceedingly gratified at your promise here to use that force upon a proper emergency, while I make these acknowledgments, I desire to repeat in order to preclude any possible misconstruction that i do most sincerely hope that we shall have no use for them that it will never become their duty to shed blood and most especially never to shed fraternal blood i promise that so far as i have wisdom to direct if so painful a result shall in any wise be brought about it it shall be through no fault of mine whilst mr lincoln in the midst of his suite and attendance was being borne in triumph through the streets of Philadelphia, and a countless multitude of people were shouting themselves hoarse and jostling and crushing each other around his carriage wheels. Mr. Felton, the president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railway, was engaged with a private detective discussing the details of an alleged conspiracy to murder him in Baltimore. Some months before, Mr. Felton, apprehending danger to the bridges along his line, had taken this man into his pay, and sent him to Baltimore to spy out and report any plot that might be found for their destruction. Taking with him a couple of other men and a woman, the detective went about his business with the zeal which necessarily marks his peculiar profession. He set up as a stockbroker under an assumed name, opened an office, and became a vehement sessionist. His agents were instructed to act, with the duplicity which such men generally use, to be rabid on the subject of southern rights to suggest all manner of crimes in vindication of them and if by these arts corresponding sentiments should be elicited from their victims the job might be considered as prospering of course they readily found out what everybody else knew that maryland was in a state of great alarm that her people were forming military associations and that governor hicks was doing his utmost to furnish them with arms a condition that the arms in case of need should be turned against the federal government whether they detected any plan to burn bridges or not the chief detective does not relate but it appears that he soon deserted that inquiry and got or pretended to get upon a scent that promised a heavier reward being intensely ambitious to shine in the professional way and something of a politician besides it struck him that it would be a particularly fine thing to discover a dreadful plot to assassinate the president-elect, and he discovered it accordingly. It was easy to get that far, to furnish tangible proofs of imaginary conspiracy was a more different matter. But Baltimore was seething with political excitement. Numerous strangers from the far south crowded its hotels and boarding-houses. Great numbers of mechanics and laborers out of employment encumbered its streets, and everywhere politicians, merchants, mechanics, laborers, and loafers were engaged in Heated discussions about the anticipated war, and the probability of northern troops being marched through Maryland to slaughter and pillage beyond the Potomac. It would seem like an easy thing to beguile a few individuals of this angry and excited multitude into the expression of some criminal desire. And the opportunity was not wholly lost, although the limited success of the detective, under such favorable circumstances, is absolutely wonderful. He put his shadows upon several persons, whom it suited his pleasure to suspect, and the shadows pursued their work with the keen zest and the cool treachery of their kind. They reported daily to their chief in writing, as he reported in turn to his employer. These documents were neither edifying nor useful. They proved nothing but the baseness of the vocation which gave them existence. They were furnished to Mr. Herndon in full, under the impression that partisan feeling had extinguished in him the love of truth. In the obligations of candor as it had in many writers who preceded him on the same subject matter they had been carefully and thoroughly read analyzed examined and compared with an earnest and conscientious desire to discover the truth if perchance any trace of truth might be in them the process of investigation began with a strong bias in favor of the conclusion at which the detective had arrived for ten years the author implicitly believed in the reality of the atrocious plot which these spies were supposed to have detected and thwarted, and for ten years he had pleased himself with the reflection that he also had done something to defeat the bloody purpose of the assassins. It was a conviction which could scarcely have been overthrown by evidence less powerful than the detective's weak and contradictory account of his own case. In that account there is literally nothing to sustain the accusation, and much to rebut it it is perfectly manifest that there is no conspiracy no conspiracy of a hundred of fifty of twenty of three no definite purpose in the heart of even one man to murder mr lincoln at baltimore the reports are all in the form of personal narratives and for the most relate when the spies went to bed when they rose where they ate what saloons and brothels they visited and what blackguards they met and drinked with one of them shadowed a loud-mouthed drinking-fellow named Luckett, and another a poor scapegrace and braggart named Hilliard. These wretches drinked and talked a great deal, hung about bars, haunted disreputable houses, were constantly half-drunk, and easily excited to use big and threatening words by the faithless protestations and cunning management of the spies. Thus Hilliard was made to say that he thought a man who should act the part of Brutus in these times would deserve well of his country and Luckett was induced to declare that he knew a man who would kill Lincoln. At length the great arch-conspirator the Brutus, the Orsini, of the New World, to whom Luckett and Hilliard, the national volunteers, and all such, were as mere puppets, condescended to reveal himself in the most obliging and confining manner. He made no mischief of his cruel and desperate scheme. He did not guard it as a dangerous secret, or choose his confidence with the circumspection which political criminals, and especially assassins, have generally thought proper to observe. Very many persons knew what he was about, and he levied on their friends for small sums—five, ten, and twenty dollars—to further the captain's plan. Even Luckett was deep enough in the awful plot to raise money for it, and when he took one of the spies to a public bar-room and introduced him to the captain, the latter sat down and talked it all over without the slightest reserve. When was there ever before such a loud-mouthed conspirator, such a trustful and innocent assassin? His name was Ferrandina, his occupation that of a barber. His place of business beneath Barnum's Hotel, where the sign of the bloodthirsty villain still invites the unsuspecting public to come in for a shave. Quote, Mr. Luckett, so the spy relates, said that he was not going home this evening, and if I would meet him at Bar's Saloon on South Street, he would introduce me to Ferrandina this was unexpected to me but i determined to take the chances and agreed to meet mr luckett at the place named at seven p m mr luckett left about two thirty p m and i went to dinner i was at the office in the afternoon in hopes that mr felton might call but he did not and at six fifteen I went to supper after supper i went to Barr's saloon and found mr luckett and several other gentlemen there he asked me to drink and introduced me to Captain Ferrandina and Captain Turner. He eulogized me very highly as a neighbor of his, and told Ferrandina that I was the gentleman who had given the twenty five dollars he, luckett had given to Ferrandina. Conversation at once got into politics, and Ferrandina, who is a fine looking, intelligent appearing person, became very excited. He shows the Italian in him, I think, in a very marked degree, and although excited it was cooler than what i had believed was the general characteristic of italians he has lived south for many years and is thoroughly imbued with the idea that the south must rule that they southerners have been outraged in their rights by the election of lincoln and fully justified resorting to any means to prevent lincoln from taking his seat and as he spoke his eyes fairly glared and glistened and his whole frame quivered but he was fully conscious of all he was doing he is a man well calculated for controlling and directing the ardent-minded he is an enthusiast and believes that to use his own words murder of any kind is justifiable and right to save the rights of the southern people in all his views he was ably seconded by captain turner captain turner is an american but although very much of a gentleman and possessing warm southern feelings he is not by any means so dangerous a man as ferrandina as his ability for exciting others is less powerful but that he is a bold and proud man there is no doubt as also that he is entirely under the control of ferrandina in fact it cannot be otherwise for even i myself felt the influence of this man's strange power and wrong though i know him to be i felt strangely unable to keep my mind balanced against him ferrandina said never never shall lincoln be president his life ferrandina's was of no consequence he was willing to give it up for lincoln's he would sell it for that abolitionists and as orsini had given his life readily so was he ferrandina ready to die for his country and the rights of the south and said ferrandina turning to captain turner we shall all die together we shall show the north that we fear them not every man captain said he will on that day prove himself a hero the first shot fired the main traitor lincoln dead and all maryland will be with us and the south shall be free and the north must then be ours mr hutchins said ferrandina if i alone must do it i shall lincoln shall die in this city whilst we were talking we mr luckett turner ferrandina and myself were alone in one corner of the bar-room and while talking two strangers that got pretty near us. Mr. Luckett called Ferrandina's attention to this, and intimated that they were listening, and we went up to the bar, drank again at my expense, and again retired to another part of the room, at Ferrandina's request, to see if the strangers would again follow us. Whether by accident or design, they again got near us. But of course we were not talking of any matter of consequence. Ferrandina said he suspected they were spies, and suggested that he had to attend a secret meeting, and was apprehensive that the two strangers might follow him, and, at Mr. Luckett's request, I remained with him, Luckett, to watch the movements of the strangers. I assured Ferrandina that, if they would attempt to follow him, that we would whip them. Ferrandina and Turner left to attend the meeting, and, anxious as I was to follow them myself, I was obliged to remain with Mr. Luckett to watch the strangers. Which we did for about fifteen minutes when Mr. Luckett said that he should go to a friend's to stay overnight, and I left for my hotel, arriving there at about nine p.m. and soon retired. End quote. It is in a secret communication between hireling spies and paid informers that these ferocious sentiments are attributed to the poor knight of the soap pot. No disinterested person would believe the story upon such evidence, and it would appear hereafter that even the detective felt that it was too weak to mention among his strong points at that decisive moment, when he revealed all he knew to the President and his friends. It is probably a mere fiction. If it had had any foundation in fact, we are inclined to believe that the sprightly and eloquent barber would have dangled at a rope's end long since. He would hardly have been left to shave and plot in peace, while the members of the legislature, the police marshal, and numerous private gentlemen were locked up in federal prisons. When Mr. Lincoln was actually slain, four years later, and the cupidity of the detectives was excited by enormous rewards, Ferrandina was totally unmolested. But even if Ferrandina really said all that is here imputed to him, he did no more than many others around him were doing at the same time. He drank and talked, and made swelling speeches, but he never took, nor seriously thought of taking, the first step toward the frightful tragedy he is said to have contemplated the detectives are cautious not to include in the supposed plot to murder any person of eminence power or influence their game is all of the smaller sort and as they conceived easily taken weightless vagabonds like hilliard and luckett and a barber whose calling indicates his character and associations they had no fault to find with the governor of the state he is rather a lively trimmer to be sure and very anxious to turn up at last on the winning side. But it was manifestly impossible that one in such exalted station could meditate murder. Yet, if they had pushed their inquiries with an honest desire to get at the truth, they might have found much stronger evidence against the governor than that which they pretended to have found against the barber. In the governor's case, the evidence is documentary, written, authentic, over his own hand, clear and conclusive as pen and ink could make it. As early as the previous November, Governor Hicks had written the following letter, and, notwithstanding its treasonable and murderous import, the writer became conspicuously loyal before spring, and lived to reap splendid rewards and high honors under the auspices of the federal government, as the most patriotic and devoted Union man in Maryland. The person to whom the letter was addressed was equally fortunate, and, instead of drawing out his comrades in the field to kill lincoln and his men he was sent to congress by power exerted from washington at a time when the administration selected the representatives of maryland and performed all his duties right loyally and acceptably shall one be taken and another left shall hicks go to the senate and webster to congress while the poor barber is held to the silly words which is alleged to have sputtered out between drinks and a low groggery under the blandishments and encouragements of an eager spy. Itching for his reward. State of Maryland, Executive Chamber, Annapolis, November ninth, eighteen sixty. Honorable E. H. Webster, my dear Sir, I have pleasure in acknowledging receipt of your favor, introducing a very clever gentleman to my acquaintance, though a demo. I regret to say that we have at this time no arms on hand to distribute assure you at the earliest possible moment your company shall have arms they have complied with all the requirement on their part we have some delay in consequence of contracts with georgia and alabama ahead of us we expect at an early day an additional supply and at first received your people shall be furnished would they be good men to send out to kill lincoln and his men if not suppose the arms would be better sent south how does late election sit with you tis too bad harford nothing to reproach yourself for your obedient servant thomas h hicks end of chapter twenty part one recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida